This morning, during the morning service, we're going to start a, a series on Psalm 119. It's a series that I have been wanting to do for a while, but being a little scared of it, just because of the just sheer size of the psalm. I uh, also was afraid that they could be repetitive, but the more I study, the more I see, I see that it's not repetitive, so we're going to embark that series, so that will be 23, sun, uh, 23 lessons. Uh, and we're going to do a little differently, is that that's going to be the text for the morning service, so we're going to do eight verses in the morning service, and then eight verses in the afternoon service. And you might say, well, but I'm not here for the afternoon service, and I'm going to miss it. It's easily solved. <laughs> Easily solved, not an issue. Is the Lord's day, not the Lord's hour. You can stay for the afternoon service and uh, be part of that too. We're going to start next uh, next Lord's day, uh, morning and afternoon. So um, that's what the plan is. And as we start that, and uh, uh, start a series on a psalm that is all about the Word of God and the God of the Word. That's really the theme of the Psalm 119: the Word of God and the God of the Word, I thought it would be profitable, at least for this first month of the series, because the series should take us to December 25th, depending on a couple of things that we're going to discuss at the session meeting today, um, it would be good for us to look at the doctrine of the Word of God from the Word of God in a more systematic way, like looking at it as a category and look at what the whole Bible says concerning itself. So for the next month or so, for between four or to six lessons on chapter one of the confession, and then later on on the chapter on of the law of God, as we look at systematically uh, uh, as to what the Bible says concerning itself, as opposed to one text from Psalm one nineteen. So those two things going together, things give us a great understanding of what the Bible says about itself the place of the Bible in our lives, and our confession is a great place to start. So you're going to need, you're going to need your Bible, the B-I-B-L-E, because that's the book for me, right? And you're going to need your hymnal for today's lesson, for the next few lessons, because our hymnal includes our confession of faith. And if you turn there to page uh, 847, Eight, the, on the little numbers on the bottom, not on the big numbers on the top, but the little numbers on the bottom, 847, you're going to find chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 1 of our confession. That's our, <clears throat> our church's confession, our denomination's confession. We're going to read paragraph 1. <laughs> uh, it's tiny print, huh? <laughs> We're going to read paragraph 1. Uh, and then uh, we're going to discuss paragraph one, then we'll move to paragraph two. Uh, the goal is to get through paragraph three. If you have more time, we'll move on. If we don't have enough time, we'll, we'll, we'll sh- shorten it. So the uh, title of chapter one is Of the Holy Scripture. It makes sense that the confession starts with that because it's going to be the basis from, for the rest of what you believe concerning the Bible. So... It's good that we confess first what is it that we believe concerning the Bible because everything else flows from the Scriptures. What you believe concerning God, which is chapter 2, what you believe concerning creation, providence, and so on, flows from what you believe concerning the Bible. So it's a good thing that our confession starts with this, that we confess first what we believe concerning the Bible. So chapter 1 of the Holy Scripture. 
Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave man unexcusable, yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of His will which is necessary unto salvation? Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in divers manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto that that his will unto his church and afterwards for the better preserving and prop, propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of satan and of the world to commit the same holy unto writing which maketh the holy scripture to be most necessary those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people being now ceased. Now, one thing you're not going to try to do is to try to figure out the punctuation. And as a previous way of punctuating, an older way of punctuating, it, it's, it doesn't match modern English punctuation. Uh, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church is working on changing that on their official um, confession. Not only that, but also words for the first time that we're going to have um, an uh, English-speaking denomination actually changed their official confession to, to modern English. That hasn't happened yet. And uh, we are, one of our committees, not denominations, helping their committee that's doing that in, in the, this whole process. So, and since the OPC does things really qu- quickly, so in about 40 years, we'll have that uh, report uh, for the first draft. Uh, so. <laughs> So what do we see here in this chapter? We see that creation reveals that there is a God to everybody. We see that all of the knowledge of a person can get from creation will not save him or her. We see that God has revealed himself in a special way besides creation. And we see that God has committed this special revelation to the scripture. So we're going to take a look at these four items from paragraph 1. Creation reveals to everybody that there is a God. The confession says, Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men unexcusable. So, what does this say? God reveals himself in creation. You look around and you see God, and the Bible teaches that. In Psalm 19, verses 1 through 3, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, no language where their voice is not heard. And it's important for us to see that, that everywhere in the world, creation declares the existence of God. Notice there, there is no speech, no language where their voice is not heard. There's, not, there's never been a person in the history of the world, and there's never going to be a person in the history of the world. There's no persons today, at this second who do not know that God exists. Because creation proclaims that. Uh, grab your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 1 for a second. Romans 1 and verses 18 through 25. We see Paul teaching, Paul teaching that as well. So Romans 1.18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, 
who suppress the truth and the righteousness. Why? Why is this wrath being revealed? Verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, there's no complication here. It's not a difficult text to understand. Paul says that creation tells everyone that God exists. Not only that, that you can see the attributes of God in creation, in general revelation. And remember, it is a revelation from God, so it's perfect. It's not a lesser revelation in the Bible. It, it reveals truth in perfection uh, about God. So we have that there in verse 20. The God reveals his attributes in creation. He's clearly seen. Man, it says that man understands what nature says about God. It doesn't say that he's confused. It doesn't say that humanity is confused. It says that he understands. Humanity understands what creation is saying about God. But what does he do with that? What does humanity, what does she do with that? Well, the, humanity suppresses this knowledge of God. Look at verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolishness were, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then verse 23, and changed their, the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible men and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And verse 25, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship and served the creator, uh, the creature rather than creator. Uh, in, and then in verse 28, and, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. So you have the suppression of this knowledge that men can see in creation. There's this act of pushing down of this knowledge that there is in, in creation of God. Uh, if you look at Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, is the... The, the, both open with the fool says in his heart there is no God. And the way that it's written, it says the fool continually says in his heart there is no God. Because the moment he stops talking to himself about God not existing, that knowledge just pops up. So there's this constant pressing, suppressing the knowledge that comes from creation. And, and, and uh, Paul says that, that that's so powerful, that's so it cannot be denied to the point that even that, in that suppressing the acknowledgement of, of God has to come up. So what does humanity do? They have to worship God, but they don't want to. They don't want to acknowledge that because acknowledging that God is God means that they have to submit to Him. So that urge to worship the true God manifests itself in worshiping false gods in creation. So instead of worshiping the creator, they worship creature. And our confession says that because God reveals himself in creation, man cannot say he never heard about God. It's clear, Paul clearly says that in verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood 
by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So nowhere, no one, nowhere can say in the judgment day, but, but I didn't know that there was a God. Nobody ever told me. Well, only every star, only every grain of sand, only every leaf in every tree, only every cloud in the sky, the sun by night, the, the, by day, the, the moon by night, yelled your whole life. There is a God. And you've decided not to hear that. You know, you often hear uh, argument against reformed faith and the, the doctrine of predestination. How about that guy in the South Pacific Island who never heard about Christ, that innocent guy in the South Pacific Island that never heard about Christ? Is he going to go to, have, to hell even without a chance to hear about Christ? And the answer is yes, because that innocent guy doesn't exist. God in creation mercifully proclaims himself to him or to her, and he or she denies the existence of God. So um, that's there. Uh, man is condemned by his refusal to recognize God in creation. And the practical application of, of the practical implication of this is that even those that have never saw or heard the Bible or heard about it are without excuse and will go to hell. And it should drive us to evangelism. It should drive us to missions. That the, remember what Jesus says, I didn't come to condemn the world. Why? Because the world already stands condemned. So that should drive us to evangelism, should drive us to mission work. It continues, the confession says that although God's revelation of himself in creation condemns men, it will not save men. It says, yet they are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of His will, which is necessary unto salvation? And Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 2.14, where it says, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So the natural man is not going to receive. They're going to, the natural man is going to think that the things that I'm saying right now are foolish things. Yet the scripture says that he or she is the fool that says in his heart that there is no God. In, in 121, 1 Corinthians 121, it says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. It is through the foolishness of the message preached that, that people are saved, not through some other means as general Revelation. You have your Bible open there to Romans 1. Why don't you turn to Romans 10 for a, for a minute? Romans 10. Verse 8. We're starting in the midst of an argument, but just for the sake of time, we're going to start here in verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the the Scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is 
no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we often stop here. But that's not where we should stop. We should continue the next two verses where Paul says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they shall not be of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? And what Paul is saying is that the only way to be saved is by hearing the preaching of God's word, the proclamation of God's word. It's interesting that we often tend to blame God for the loss in the aisles that don't get saved. Paul squarely says, no, the burden is on the church. How shall they hear, how shall they preach if they're not sent? The burden is on our shoulders to send and to go, to proclaim that word, because clearly without that, no one will be saved. No one's going to ever be saved by looking at a tree. No one's ever going to be saved by hugging a tree. No one's going to ever be saved by gazing at the stars, only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as revealed in the Bible. Any questions before we continue? All right, so the, the confession continues and says that God has revealed himself in a special way besides creation. It says, therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church. This is a, this is a reference to Hebrews 1.1 1, 1, uh, in the language of the old King James. But that's what Hebrews 1.1 1 says. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. So we read, the, we read the Bible and see that God, through the ages, spoke in all kinds of different ways to his people. He, he spoke to them directly. Uh, you can think of examples in the Bible where God is speaking directly to his people. He spoke to Adam, he spoke to Cain, he spoke to Noah, he spoke to Abram, to Moses, to Samuel, to Jesus. We also see God speaking to people by way of theophanies. A theophanies is a visual representation of God... God the Son, the second person, he's, he's always the revealer of God. The New Testament says that he's the express image of the Godhead. So in the Old Testament, we have several times where the angel of the Lord appears to people. That's the Son, God the Son, in a visual way appearing to people. And we see the three men coming to Abraham. And it says one of them was the angel of the Lord. So one of those was also a theophany. So God's speaking to his people. See that to Abraham, see that to Jacob, Moses, Joshua. Remember Joshua, the guy so, uh, strolls up with a sword in front of him. And Joshua says, are you with us or against us? And again, that's, that's a theophany to Gideon, to Samson's parents. God also spoke in dreams to Joseph, to Pharaoh, to Nebuchadnezzar, to Daniel, to Joseph in the New Testament, you know, where he had four different dreams of God speaking to them there. God also spoke through trances and visions. Uh, now, a vision is different than theophany. In the theophany, everybody sees it. A vision is just a, a subjective to, uh, thing to one person. And you see that in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, in Paul, in Peter, with John. God spoke through angels. God spoke to angels through Abraham, to Daniel, to Zechariah, to Mary, to women to the woman at the Jesus' tomb, to Cornelius, to Peter, in different ways. God spoke to the priests. 
Remember the, the umim and sumim, the little whatever, nobody really knows exactly how that was, but the device that allowed people to ask questions and be directed by God. Remember the test for the uh, married woman that uh, was accused of adultery, that the priest would come and test her. So God spoke through the priests. God spoke through the prophets. There's too many to list uh, here. And then God spoke through the Lord Jesus Christ as well in um, Hebrews 1, the rest of the, ver- the, the, chat, the passage says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in, the, in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son. So a con- this is a contrast. God used to speak in these ways. Now he spoke through his son. The way that he speaks through his son, his word is the fulfillment of all these other modes of revelation. And in his fulfillment, we don't need them anymore. They are completed. It's the same way with the sacrifices. We don't need the sacrifices anymore because Christ fulfilled them. Right? We're not arguing, I hope, that we should bring a goat here and slice its throat. Because Christ has fulfilled that aspect of the word of God. Same way, that's what the author of Hebrews says. that they, God did that, but now he is doing this through his son. Any questions? All right, the confession continues and says that God has committed this special revelation to the scripture. And afterwards, paragraph one still, and afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same, the the revelation that was given, Holy unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people being now ceased. So, it says that God established the Word for comfort of His people. We're given the Bible, so the, the, His people would be comforted. And Paul says that in Romans 15, 4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Notice that it's through the comfort and patience of the Scriptures, or the writings. Not through dreams and visions and trances and angels and prophets, and, but the Scripture. Also, it was preserved for the preserving and propagating of the truth. Remember how the book of Luke starts? That Luke says, I'm writing this so that you can know the truth. Oh, most honored Theophilus. The confession says that uh, the, the God gave us the Bible, the scriptures, in order to stand against the malice of Satan and the world. Remember how Jesus used the word of God against Satan? Uh, in, in, the, uh, in the temptation, and that's how, one of the reasons why we have the Word of God. And then that, that uh, particular paragraph ends by saying that those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people being now seized, the diverse ways, the, the trances, the visions, the prophets, the priests, the, the, uh, appear, the, the uh, theophanies, and all the other things we talked about, that has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and the canon is completed. We don't need any more. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, where at the end of the chapter where he says that now we see by, through a glass, but when all things are fulfilled, we will see 
fully. Uh, tongues will pass away, he says, prophecies will cease, but with the word of God will, will continue there. As we're going to see throughout the study of Psalm 119, time and again, he says it's the word of God that's settled in heaven forever. We, Paul makes the same argument in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says the, the apostles and the prophets are foundation material for the church. Once the foundation is laid, you don't need those anymore. And we, you now need the stuff that you build walls and windows and roof with, not the foundation stuff anymore. And he says that that's what pastors and teachers equip the church for, with the Word of God, in order to build um, the church up. If you look, read to the book of, of, of Acts, you'll see that about chapter 20, there is a, a shift from apostles and miracles to elders in obedience. There's that shift there, and that shows the transition, the fulfillment of the church. And once the canon was fulfilled, the canon was completed with the book of Revelation, then the gifts that were given in order to affirm the truth, the veracity, the, 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 the authenticity, uh, uh, authenticity of the words don't, are not, don't need to be there anymore because that has been already established in the canon. Any questions before we continue? All right, so, so God reveals himself in creation and man, and man is morally obligated to recognize that revelation. Man does not recognize God in creation but distorts it. So God revealed himself to his people in supernatural ways through the ages this revelation culminating with the Lord Jesus Christ, and then God gathered all these revelations into his written word for us, and that's what we call the Bible. Okay, we're going to jump into paragraph two. So it should be the next page, I think, in your hymnal. And I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to read the entirety, because I'm not going to read all the books, because it's listed all 66 books there. Um, it says this, under the name of Holy Scripture, change my slide. Under the name of Holy Scripture, uh, or the Word of God written, are now contained all the books of the Old Testament, all the New Testaments, which are these. And then you have the list of the books. Now, those are important. I'm just not going to take the time to read the 66 lists, but the, those are the ones that are in your, our Bible today. And then it ends by saying, all of which are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. So, this is the canon. The canon is just the list of bo- the books that are part of the Bible. That's what the word canon means. The list of the books that are part of the Bible. I want you to notice that it says that the, uh, under the name of Holy Scripture or the Word of God written, are, con- are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testament. Uh, contained, you give the idea that uh, Oh, there's more than that. No, in, in the time on this 17th century when this was written, the word contained means it's equal. Uh, the Old Testament and New Testament is equal to uh, the Word of God. It's not saying that there's something out there that's outside of the Scriptures, and all of which are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. So the Old Testament has 39 books in our Bible today. The New Testament has 27 books. We're not missing any. Um, there's not too many either. Uh, they're all the Word of God. Any questions on that? 
All right, then paragraph three talks about the Apocrypha. And it says the Apocrypha are not part of the Bible, and therefore I don't have authority. Look at paragraph three. It says, the books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon of the Scripture, and therefore are of no authority in the Church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. So, so the word Apocrypha is reserved, is only referring to the extra books that are in the Roman Catholic Bible. It's a technical term. It only refers to the extra books that are in the Roman Catholic Bible. The Roman Catholic Bible is bigger than the Protestant Bible, but it's not the biggest Bible. The, some of the Eastern Orthodox Bibles are much longer. The longest being the, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. They have, I don't know, 30 more books than the Protestant Bible or so. So, what are the Apocrypha? They're, they're additions to the Bible in the, the current Roman Catholic Church. They added the book of Tobit. They added the book of Wisdom, the book of Judith, the book of Ecclesiasticus. Not Ecclesiastes, but Ecclesiasticus. They added the book of Baruch, First and Second Maccabees. So these are whole books that they added. And then they added three passages to the book of Daniel. They added um, the history of Susanna. They added the, the song of the three children. And they added the history of Bell and the dragon. It's, it's interesting to read them because it's like a sleuth detective little story where um, they would offer sacrifices to, to Bell as the god and the sacrifices would disappear overnight and Daniel comes and spreads flour in the temple of Bel, and the next day they see footprints leading to a wall, and they find a false door where the priests are, and they open the door, and the priests are there eating the sacrifice that they... So it's interesting reading. It's just not part of the Bible. So these are, these are the Apocrypha. The, 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 these are additions in the Roman Catholic Bible. Heather. So are these books considered to be historically accurate? First Maccabees. Of all these, is the first, not second. No, Mm-mm. first Maccabees is a really good history of the period between Malachi and Matthew. Are these also all books um, that are part of Judaism? No, no, not at all. I mean, they are in the Jewish tradition, okay. and they would read them as good literature. Some of them, mm-hmm. but the, and as we we're going to say in a moment, Jewish tradition never recognized them as part of the Old Testament. Okay. Maybe a, a sect over here, but the mainstream of Judaism never recognized them as. Uh, and then, no, yeah. But there's all kinds of other ones, but these are the ones that, uh, you yeah, know, was the Roman Catholic. All part of Old Testament, not. No, 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 yes. Yes. In the Roman Catholic New Testament, and our New Testament are exactly the same. Jordan. They're not inspired, right? So uh, if I said, Jordan, you must give me all your money because in the book of Tobit, it says, and you say, whatever, right? But if I say, Jordan, you need to walk God with the Lord because 1 Timothy 4, 7 says that there's no, there's greater contentment with godliness. Now, oh, 
That's not teacher saying, it's God saying that because it's, it's in the Bible. Does it make sense? So they're not authoritative. doesn't mean that they're from the devil. It doesn't mean that they're bad. And there's some good things. Uh, uh, wisdom is a good, it, 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 it's a good common sense book um, and, and so on. But they're not the word of God. Right? It would be like reading Jerry Bridges, trusting God, kind of. Does it make sense? Yeah. All right. Any other questions on that? Andrew? When speaking of the canonicity of these books in the Roman Catholic canon, some will say that it wasn't brought officially into the Roman Catholic canon until Trent, post-Reformation. Yeah. It's not, it's not some will say. That's actually, it's actually the official recognition of them. It's 1546. Yes, but if you talk to a lot of Roman Catholics, will then point to a council around the time of Jerome. There's the argument that they make. Right, and that council refused. There's no council in the history of the church that acknowledged these books as being part of the canon till the Counter-Reformation in 1546 because that was the argument the reformers brought. We shouldn't have to submit to these books because it's never been part of the church and the church goes, oh yeah? Let's take a vote of the cardinals. And I mean, I've simplified things, but that's, well, there are segments of the church that held to these books more, more tightly than others, but they always have been debated books in the history of, of the church. And that's what I want to... So, uh, these books were never part of the Hebrew scriptures. They were re- actually rejected by Jews as far as being part of the Hebrew scriptures. Christ and the apostles never quote from these books. And they quote from completely secular authors, right? Uh, uh, in Acts 17... Paul quotes from a completely secular Greek philosopher in Titus. A couple times he quotes from Greek philosophers. So they weren't opposed to quoting from non-biblical sources, but they never quoted from these ones, ever. Um, the, the early church fathers never embraced these books as a whole. And as I said, even the Roman Catholic Church did not accept them as a church till the 16th century, till after 1546 with the establishment of the Council of Trent as a, um, as a um, measure to, to uh, fight the Protestant advances. And they had to do that because some of their doctrines will not stand apart from this book. Namely, the doctrine of purgatory is based on Sacrament Maccabees. So without Sacrament Maccabees, you can't have purgatory. Uh, inter- eternal evidence disproves, in the book themselves, improves the... This proves the, any claim of canonicity. None of them claim to be inspired. And the best of them claim not to be inspired. Like wisdom, uh, the wisdom of, of, of uh, Ben Sirach, I think is the, the whole name. The guy says, this is not the word of God. <laughs> so, in, you know, in, in, in the context uh, there. So, and then the moral content also contradicts. Uh, I think is in the story of Susanna where she goes and uh, seduces the enemy um, general and has sex with him and then kills him. Uh, that's not really part of the morality of, of the scriptures. Renee? Doesn't Jude quote from the book of Enoch, but not authoritatively? No, he quotes authoritatively, but Enoch is not part of the Apocrypha. The, only these are Apocrypha books. If you, it's a, as a first... Uh, First century BC, so 100 years to 100 years 
before Christ. And, and what happens is that that portion of the book is, is inspired because, uh, man, Idaho is all arriving. Tim Lehman just entered the house. Wow. Uh, that's a good movement this way. Everybody this way instead of that way. Uh, so the, that, that is not an apocryphal, apocryphal book, uh, Renee. And that's my point, that the authors, they were willing to quote from other books, but never from these. Okay? And my, all these existed at the time of Christ. Correct. But they're all... Yes. Okay. They are, they are, um, all of them are intertestamental. They're written after Malachi, before Matthew. Natalie. Because only that part was inspired. There's such, such thing as common grace, right? Uh, there's things uh, an unbeliever can s- come up with something true, and if it's true, then it's consistent with who God is. But it's just a common grace. It doesn't mean that everything that the unbeliever writes is true, right? Um, the same way with the Greek philosopher, what he, they said that Paul quotes, like in him we move and have. Uh, uh, in him we move and live and have our being, I think is what he quotes. That portion was accurate, right, and true. So it doesn't mean that when Enoch wrote the book or whoever, because it wasn't Enoch, right? It's thousands of years after Enoch. Whenever, whoever wrote the book, that portion, the Holy Spirit guided the, the apostles, or Jude in that case was not an apostle, to grab that and say, this is true. Right, so the portion of that portion of Enoch is true. The book of Jude is inspired. Is it, are you? Does it make sense? Okay, Andrew, you had your hand up. Yeah, just a quick terminological clarification. I mean, if you read around, Enoch will be described as apocryphal. Yeah, but that's but that's. Yeah, I don't think so. It's, uh, Enoch falls under the category of pseudepigraphal. Pseudepigraphal. Yeah, which is not the same thing. Apocryphal, theologically, are only these. I mean, in uninformed people might use it, but theologically, if you're a serious theologian, you only, in, any, of any flavor, Catholic or, um, uh, and even, in the, you might want to burn it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's probably a drum, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. So it, it's, a, a, the, the apocrypha is this. Now, the term apocryphal writing is used like, uh, of other writings in history. Oh, this is not, this is not uh, Shakespeare. It's an apocryphal play. Right? So the term, but in, in theology, only these are the apocrypha. Right? In Oxford, it's a pseudepigraphal book. Because pseudepigraphal means false signature. So somebody wrote in the name of Enoch. So it's pseudepigraphal. Mike, you had your hand up. Yeah. You did? Oh yeah. Yes. Yes, they were. Um, so we get through paragraph three of the first chapter of the confession, and we'll continue next week. Uh, God has preserved, has promised to preserve His word, and He has done that. He said, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And he has kept his word in that we have the Bible today. Any final comments or questions before we close? All right, let's pray. Father, heaven, thank you that you are a good God. We thank you that you speak through your word. 
We thank you that uh, you have a church full of people who are able to understand your word and write clearly what it teaches for us to understand as well. We pray that we'll be faithful to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.